And in honor of God's word, would you please join with me and stand as we read from Colossians 2. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you, please, to pray with me before we continue to look at this passage. Father, it is our enormous privilege uh, to know that you promised to, to dwell among us, that you have given us Jesus, and in Jesus we have you, that you have communicated yourself to us through him. And now you speak to us even now. And so we ask, as those who need you more deeply than we can possibly realize, that you would open our minds, that you would open our hearts, that you would nourish our souls on Christ Jesus, that we would grow more and more into the people that you have created us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what I'd like uh, to do this morning. Uh, If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been looking at the book of Colossians, and that Colossians is a book that encourages us to think about growth. It it invites us, it actually sets kind of a, a plan. It helps us to understand this is how we grow, which is something all of us want to do. All of us want to continue to become the people that we were created to be. And to this point, we've been given more of the the big picture understanding of what growth looks like. That that growth, true growth, happens through the gospel. Specifically, it comes as our lives are centered increasingly on Jesus. And last week we saw that this is a long, lifelong process where we should be prepared for dips. Those are kind of big picture ideas. This morning, however, maybe you even noticed, we start moving slightly more towards the practical. We have the very first command that we have in the letter of Colossians and the verses that were just read. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. If there is a place in Colossians that you especially want to highlight as being the center, I think this is it. I think this is the heart of what the entire letter of Colossians is written, to help us to live in this way. So this is where I want us to go this morning. I want us to get to the point where we're really hearing what these verses are saying. But to do that, I actually want to move forward to the second half of the passage, because I think that passage gives us the context or the understanding of why this command is so important. And really, if we look at these verses collectively, we see that Paul is speaking both to the Colossians to, and to us and to any who feel this desire to grow. And he says, if you're feeling stuck, if you're feeling inadequate, it is not because you need more than Jesus. It's because you need more of Jesus. That's, that's what this passage, more than anything else, helps us to understand. 
that whatever our needs are, it's not that we need more than Jesus, but we need more of Jesus. And, and so I want to quick jump ahead to a verse that I think is, is astonishing. Verse 9 is one of the phrases that I think is one of the hardest to understand in all of Scripture, but one of the most amazing. It says, in him, that is, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, if this, if this statement doesn't astonish us, if it doesn't confuse us, then it's only because we've heard it so often that we have forgotten just how strange this idea really is. That, that God, God himself, very, God's very essence, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, came to dwell among us, not through a temple, not through a burning bush, not on a, on a top of a mountain, but in a human being. That the fullness of deity came in a body with, an el with elbows and toenails, with, with heartbeat and brain waves, experiencing puberty and encountering disease. And it wasn't just that this person, Jesus, is a reminder of God or somehow like God or a symbol of God. The whole fullness of deity came to dwell in this, in this body, in Christ Jesus. God, fully God, inhuman. Just to remind you, this is the God that, if we were to go back a billion years, and then go back a billion years more, God would not be any younger than he is now because he's always been. This is the God who is so incredibly in control and powerful that just simply by speaking, everything around us came into existence. The one in whose presence mountains that are enormous tremble and, and hurricanes of enormous power come, are stilled to a whisper. This God. This is the God who is the source of all beauty because he himself is beautiful. Who is the one who gives all joy the one who is the source of all love because God is love. This God, the one who is beyond our understanding, came to live among us in bodily form in the person of Jesus. And that is beyond our ability to understand. And yet, as, as beyond, as, as, as mind-numbing because it's so big as it can be, Paul draws a, a very practical implication from this. So he says in verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. In other words, if you are one who has put your faith in Jesus and you're connected with Christ, because that's what it means to be a Christian, you're connected with Jesus, you are filled through Christ. You have all that you need to be made complete. That word filled could just as easily be translated made complete. You have all that you need in Christ Jesus to fully become the person that you were created to be. See, when we become a Christian, 
when we place our faith in Jesus, that's, that's more than about just us having a mindset change. Something happens to you. God connects you to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And all that Jesus is, the fullness of deity dwelling bodily in Jesus, he shares with you and with me. Now, some of what he shares we will not experience until the last day. The Bible says that when Jesus returns, the very power of resurrection that gave his body life will come to our bodies and give us life, and we won't have any more faults and weaknesses or anything of failing a disease. It will be awesome. But even now, we experience some of Jesus sharing what he has with us. Spiritually, all that he has, he shares with you. His righteousness his love, his relationship with the Father, his wisdom, all that his is now yours. It's like he has this enormous spiritual bank account and he gives you a checkbook and says, take from it anytime you want. All that is Jesus is now ours, which means we have in him all that we need to be made complete. So again, what that means is if there is a time that we're feeling lacking, if we feel the desire to grow and become different, and we do, it is not because we don't have enough in Jesus. It's not that we need more than Jesus, because in Jesus we have everything. It's that we need more of Jesus. And so the key to truly growing is to steer away from those things that pull us away from Jesus, that tempt us to think that we need something besides Jesus, and to organize our lives so that more and more we are being filled by Jesus. And that's really where Paul takes us. If we just back up a verse, we see Paul warning against those things that will turn us away from Jesus. Verse 8, he says, See to it. That none of you, that no one takes you captive. This is a warning. See to it. Watch out. That no one takes you captive. Now for us, taking captive is just kind of, it's a metaphor that doesn't mean much to us. But in that day, it was a live metaphor because people knew what happened. If an enemy army took your city, then anyone who was left, who hadn't been killed by the, by the war, would then be taken captive and they'd be slaves for the rest of their lives. So Paul is using vivid language. He says, watch out. Watch out, because there are things that are threatening to take you captive and to make you slaves. And what is it that will do that? He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Watch out, he says, for these human philosophies that are empty and deceptive, because they will take you away from Jesus. Now my guess is, if we were to list like our top five things that we're anxious about, that we're on alert of, maybe disease, maybe crime, I don't know, some other things, financial insecurity, my guess is human philosophy would not be one of those top five. But Paul says it should be. There are, now philosophies, don't think of like a philosophy class or philosophy textbook. By philosophy, he means ways of thinking, ways of approaching life. And Paul is saying there are ways of seeing the world that are surrounding you that are going to be tempting to influence you, that if you let yourself be shaped by them, they will hold you captive and they will take you from Jesus and all that you need for life. What are some examples? So, um, 
Paul would have had his examples in his day for the Colossian church. I thought through what are some examples for us today of things that so surround us as human philosophies that are tempted because they're human traditions to take us away from Jesus. And I thought of a couple. So one is what I might call the, the follow your bliss philosophy. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. It was initially coined by a man by the name of Joseph Campbell, a, a philosopher. And he basically said, this is the key to life, to follow your bliss, to understand what it is that truly makes you happy and pursue it at all costs. And, and that really is what drives so much of our culture, if you think about it. Like if you were to ask parents, what is your dream for your kids? In other generations, it might be that they contribute to society, that they live a noble life, that they're honorable. Here's what you'll hear from parents. I just want them to pursue whatever makes them happy. It's follow your bliss. You see it in, in, in the great philosophical movies of our time, like that great philosophical film, Moana, which maybe some of you have seen. If you haven't, it's the story of you know, this, this girl who is the daughter of a chief in a Polyne like you know, some in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on this island. And she has these responsibilities and she knows that she's supposed to do them, but she wants to travel the ocean. And so you have this, this moment where she breaks out into song, and Timothy threatens to say, I'm gonna force you to see he wanted me to sing this so that we all could cringe together, but I'm not gonna do that to you. I'm just gonna quote it. Um, so, you know, as she, she says, I've been staring at the edge of the water long as I can remember, never really knowing why. I wish I could be the perfect daughter, but I come back to the water, no matter how hard I try. Every turn I take, every trail I track, every path I make, every road leads back to the place I know where I cannot go, where I long to be. See the land where the... I'm almost singing right now, but I'm pulling back. See the land where the sky meets the sea, it calls me. That's a song about following your bliss. There's this desire, this, there's this thing that my heart longs for. And in some ways the movie implies if she doesn't do that, she will die. If she doesn't do that, she will be miserable. She needs to, we all need to know what makes us happy and follow it at all costs. The follow your bliss philosophy, it's everywhere. But what is it actually delivering? I would say that we are in a society more than any other time that is consumed with trying to figure out what makes us happy and following it. But are we actually that happy? Do, do we really actually know what our bliss is? Are we really that good at figuring it out and following our bliss? And what happens when my bliss, or at least what I perceive it is, might hurt other people? Like, what happens if following my bliss is to take an incredibly risky financial venture that will probably bankrupt our family? Or, or what if it is that someone's bliss is another woman where he leaves his wife to follow his bliss with someone else? And, you know, there's, a, there's something about seeking our own happiness. Working hard to be happy is a little bit like working hard to go to sleep. It seems like the more actively you pursue it, the more it eludes you. Are we really that good? How much is following our bliss really delivering what it promises? It is, I would suggest, an empty and deceptive philosophy. But it's more than that. It's darker than that because, well, if we're following our bliss, then what is our God really? It's, it's our happiness. 
Everything else must take second place, which means Jesus cannot have the place that he must take as our Lord. I can think of friends of mine who, who eventually turned away from the faith, not because they were convinced it was untrue, but because it just felt unuseful to them. They, they wanted to be happy they wanted to follow their bliss, and at a certain point, they concluded that what Jesus called them to and who he was would not get them there. And so they followed their bliss instead of Jesus. They were taken captive, and it's tragic. And Paul says, watch out. Be on your guard against human philosophies that threaten to take you captive. You know, another example of a human philosophy that shapes us so much that I don't think even we're aware of it sometimes is secularism. Secularism is really, a, you know, we're in what's described as a secular age. What happened a few hundred years ago is people realized that they were not going to be able to come to an agreement about how they understood things in terms of God, whether they were Catholic or Protestant. And so in some ways there was a truce that was made in saying, let's just figure out the things that we agree on and build our society based on that on the things that we can see, on the things that we can experiment over. And what happened over time is God moved more and more to the periphery. It's hard for us to understand, but if you go 600 years back, God is not something you choose to believe in or not. He is just the thing by which you view everything else. But now, now it's a choice you make. Just like, you know, what job are you going to do? Who are you going to marry? What religion will you believe in? It's something that's private. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not central. You don't need a belief in the eternal and the transcendent to have meaning in your life. Meaning is found in a good job and being economically prosperous and having a good relationship. Everything that's important is what we can see. That's central. All of that is what secularism is about. What it has promised is unity. We can all come together on those things and results. You know when you've gotten a raise or when you've bought something or if you've bought an iPhone, you know that you've get it, gotten something out of this. What do we get when we pray or when we believe in a God we cannot see? We know we get results with the things that we can see. But again, I want to ask, how has secularism delivered on its promises? Are we really more unified than we were? And, and are our lives somehow more meaningful and satisfying than they once were. It's interesting, you actually, if you study some of the academics in like these elite secular circles, there has been a growing acknowledgement that secularism is hitting a dead end. Because the things that are most precious, human equality, justice, love, beauty, all of these demand a belief in something transcendent for them to be true. Secularism promises, but it, it doesn't deliver. And again, more than that, it, it turns us away. Because if we allow secular thinking to shape us, God is still there, but he's in the periphery, which means he's not God at all. Really, our God is our job, is our security, is the things that we can see and taste and touch. And Jesus is put on the periphery. And eventually he's removed altogether. Again, I've seen people who have turned from the faith not because there was some compelling argument for why Jesus must not be king, 
but simply because Jesus stopped feeling real. He's not as substantial as the stuff that I can touch. And God stopped feeling real and certainly stopped feeling as relevant. And so he put, was, to, was put to the side. See, it's a philosophy that holds us captive. And Paul says, watch out. Watch out. We, we think things are major threats like disease or financial insecurity. They do not compare compared to the philosophies that can hold us captive and make us slaves and turn us from the most precious and glorious part of life, and that is Jesus. Watch out. Do not let yourself be confused into thinking you need more than Jesus. Focus your life on more and more receiving more of Jesus. And how do we do that? Well, that's finally what gets us back to this command That is at the very beginning. The very beginning of our passage is about how we grow in Jesus. Again, I'll read it to you. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here's a summary of what I think Paul is saying here. How do you want to grow? How do you grow as a Christian, how do you become more full, more shaped by Jesus? It's by every day choosing to receive what he has for you. By every day, every hour, choosing to receive what he has for you. Paul kind of turns us back to the moment that some of us became Christians. Says, what happened when you became a Christian? This is what it fundamentally means to be a Christian. It means to receive the gift God has for us in Jesus. You know, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his son. And a Christian is one who recognizes that God has this gift and they, humbled by it, receive it. Receive that Jesus is their savior. Receive the gift that Jesus is their king. Paul says here, just in the same way that you began, that's the way you need to continue by receiving the gift that God has for you in Jesus. That's the logic. Do you see? Therefore, as you, you know, here is the way, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so also walk in him. The way that you should walk, the way that you should live, is the same way that it began, by receiving. And that word walk here has this idea of ongoing activity. It's a conscious daily choice of receiving what Jesus has for us. That's how we become more full of Jesus, by receiving what he has for us. And Paul illustrates this with three different metaphors that totally don't fit together. So you kind of, you can't like combine them all in one thinking. You have to kind of take turns. The first one is walking. Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. And walking was a really common metaphor in the biblical times for living. It's, it's, you know, it's a metaphor for how we grow. If you think about it, growing is kind of a journey towards a destination. And every, every choice we make, every, everything that we're acting upon is another step that either moves us towards it or maybe gets us lost and turns us away. And, and Paul says, here's how you walk. You walk in Christ. Christ himself says, I am the way. And Paul says, that's the way that you need to walk. So maybe we can imagine ourselves in the middle of a forest or in the middle of a jungle 
and trying to get out of the jungle home, and we see a few paths, but one of them we know is a path that Jesus himself cut for us. He, he went ahead with the machete, he cut all of the vines, all of the scrubs, so there's a path. He's even made markers along the way to make sure we know that we're going the right path. And maybe even along the way, he's given us shelters and foods to make sure we can get to the end. That is the way that Jesus offers us. And Paul says, see the way of Jesus? That's the way that you should receive and embrace and take. So when you are finding yourself frustrated because a coworker, to make himself look better, has made you look worse, and you are so, so tempted to do the exact same thing back to him, you need to look where you are and look at the way of Jesus, the way of integrity and forgiveness, and walk that way. Or when you've just received an increase in pay, maybe it's because of either a tax break or a raise, and you're tempted to just say, how can I make myself more comfortable? Again, pause, look where you are, look at the way that Jesus has marked out, the way of generosity where he has given himself completely for us, and walk in that way. If you're tempted to criticize your spouse or talk back to a parent, if you're tempted to avoid the person at school or at church who just seems so obnoxious, if you're tempted in a conversation just to talk yourself up because you want people to pay attention more to you, again, pause and look at the way that Jesus has marked out for you, the way that he has walked, and follow. Let me say, this is more than just another way of saying imitate Christ, although it is at least that. It's saying that Jesus has given us away. There's a verse in Proverbs, one of my favorites, says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways seek to know him and he will make your path straight. And I love that idea. He will make your path straight as we are walking, as we are journeying. We can get so twisted, we can get so confused. And Jesus says, I have a path for you. And it's straight and it's good and it's the one that I have made. Receive the gift that Jesus has and walk the path that he has paved for you. As you've received Christ as Lord, so walk in him. And then he shifts metaphors completely and moving from growth as a journey, it's now growth as a tree that's, that's bearing fruit. For a tree to be healthy, for a tree to bear much fruit, it needs to have roots in the same place, in the right place that is. And so Paul says, being rooted in Christ Jesus. He's you know, there's a, you know, the Bible uses this imagery fairly frequently. There's this passage in Jeremiah that says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, because he does not cease to bear fruit. And so Paul alluding to this says, That's, here's where your roots need to be. Your roots need to be in Jesus. Your roots, where you draw your nourishment, where you draw your strength, day after day, they need to be in Jesus. Because the reality is, you and I, we cannot do this thing alone. You know, I remember a friend of mine saying this, and it's stuck with me ever since, saying one of the dangers of the way that we hear the Christian message is we hear it like this. You have done wrong. God has forgiven you because Jesus died for you. Now work hard to be a better person. Promise you and I, our willpower is just not that good. 
We're, we're not going to somehow change our defensiveness to make ourselves more relaxed or change this inner disposition of selfishness to be more generous and loving. We cannot do that. No, the gospel is not, God has done this for you, now you do it. It's, God has done this for you, and he loves you, and he has forgiven you, and Jesus has died for you, and in Jesus you have everything, and the more that you can take hold of that reality, the more that this reality can shape your day of knowing, I am forgiven I am loved. I am a child of God through Christ Jesus. That's the power that suddenly disarms your defensiveness. That's the power that suddenly, because you start knowing how full you are through Christ, that allows you to love others. And so for us to grow, our roots need to go down to Jesus so that we are drawing on him for our nourishment, for our strength. And Jesus actually gives us kind of this growth plan. Here's how you do it. Here's how you get your strength from me. He says, meditate on me. We, we look at scripture regularly on Sundays, and I encourage you throughout the week to be looking at scripture. It's not so that you can be good at Bible trivia. It's so that you can be nourishing your soul as you're looking at Jesus and coming to understand more what he has done for you and who you are in him. Jesus says, pray, pray in my name. Every time we come to God with our needs, we are once again learning how to draw our strength from Jesus because we come to the Father through Christ Jesus. We draw closer to him as we pray. Jesus says, connect to my body. When we come together as a church, it's not just a social club. There is a way that by being together, Jesus is nearer to us. We are being spiritually nourished by being amongst each other. And then when we come to the table, in a very literal fashion, Jesus is nourishing our souls. Friends, we know at a physical level that if, if we eat poorly and we overeat, if we don't exercise, we will be harming ourselves. And Jesus says it's even more the case when it comes to us spiritually. If we do not set aside some sort of plan for how we can continue to be nourishing ourselves on Jesus, we will not grow. We need to be nourished. We need to be rooted in Christ, receiving from him the strength that he has for us. And one final metaphor that we see, not only are we to walk in Jesus, to be rooted in Jesus, but it says we are to be built up in Jesus. I think the image here is of Jesus being this master craftsman and each of us being like stones. Stones that don't really fit very well, but he knows how to chip away, make it perfectly, and he's putting each of us as stones together, forming us and making us, as the Bible says, into the temple of God. Here's, here's a remarkable idea. So in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells, and all that, God, all that Jesus has, he shares with us. And the Bible says, because we're united to Christ, as we become the people we are created to be, God's presence dwells in us in such a way that we are the connection point between God and the world. For the world to know God, they know God through the church. And, and so if the first one was telling us the way that we should walk, and the second one with rooting is telling us where we, we begin, where our strength comes from, this image of being built up shows us our mission. Jesus has given us a project, a glorious project, that we are to become the temple of God by whom the whole world comes to know God. 
And so that means taking hold of this mission and saying, Lord, how can, you, how can I become so changed by you? How can I live in such a way that the world comes to know you more? God gives us a mission. He gives us dignity by giving us this calling of showing the world in our, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our communities, helping people to see the glory of God. So this is, this is what it means when he's saying, as you have received Jesus uh, Christ the Lord, so walk in him. This is how we are filled more, by being rooted in him, by being built up in him, by, by walking in him. And do you notice what the outcome is? So, so therefore, you know, we see these are the things you do. What's the final phrase that says, abounding in thanksgiving? This is not a command by Paul to be polite. This is not saying whenever good things happen, make sure you say thank you to God when it does. Abounding is something that happens spontaneously. It happens through an overflow. And what Paul is saying is, unlike with these human deceptive philosophies that promise much and are ultimately empty, they don't get us anywhere. As we walk in Christ, as, as we are rooted in Jesus, as we are being built up in Christ, we will overflow in thanksgiving because we will be full. And the reason for this is because in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells. And Jesus is connected to you and to me so that in him we are full. Our problem is never that we need more than Jesus. We just need more of Jesus. I invite you to take some time responding to God's word and prayer. Maybe there are things as we hear this command where we both realize are failing and it's appropriate for us to confess, but also for us to ask for God's help, because you and I can't do this alone. This whole process of confessing and then receiving the Lord's Supper is one of the ways that we are rooted in Christ and nourishing our souls on him. So let's take a couple minutes in silent prayer to speak to God, and then I'll lead us in a couple minutes' time. Father, you are a God of grace. You are a God whose generosity is beyond our ability to comprehend. So Lord, we pray, acknowledging that so often we turn elsewhere to find what we can only find in you through Christ. We pray for forgiveness, and we pray for your help. Lord, would you please teach us how to take hold of what is given to us through Jesus. Would you please help us to walk in him, to be 
rooted day in and day out in Christ, to be built up by him, so that our lives would be overflowing with thanksgiving. Lord, would you please protect us from the ways of thinking that threaten to move us off of Christ. Help us, Lord, more and more to realize what it means and to be filled with awe that all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus himself. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we remember before God our sinfulness, we also remember the good news of the gospel. This is what we'll find in the passage that we'll be reading in a couple of weeks' time in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In Christ you are forgiven. Thanks be to God.